Hi, everybody. This is God Sad for the Sad Truth. I've had all sorts of illustrious guests over the past almost nine years now on this show, but I have never had a brigadier general. So I am I am giddy as a kid. How you doing, General? Great to see you, God. You too. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm very excited. Okay, let's uh, let's go through the bio very quickly. You you were a brigadier general of the U.S. military. You're now retired. You performed the duties of undersecretary for defense for policy. You commanded combat units in the 82nd, 101st Airborne, and the 10th Mountain Divisions. You earned Combat Action Badge and the Bronze Star Medal. You were Secretary of Transportation at the state level for North Carolina, author of 15 uh, books of fiction, including several bestsellers, and your most recent one, which we'll be talking about shortly, Total Empire. It just came out. Uh, did I cover some of the highlights, or do you want to add anything to your bio? No, no, that's great. Uh, I, I, I served in the military. Uh, I served in education. I served in uh, transportation and state government. And then I got to serve at DOD at the highest level. It's, uh, my career, my life has one, been one of public service. That's wonderful. Uh, uh, actually, my son, I mean, I have both a son and a daughter. And uh, as you might imagine, you know, young boys, not to be stereotypical, love military stuff. So just like me, when I told him that I'm speaking to a brigadier general, he was all excited. There is something, I, I mean, I know that brigadier general is one star general, but just the name brigadier has this aura about it. Uh, you want to weigh in on that? or, or Yeah, or sure. You know, it's... Um... It's a, it's an old school rank. Brigadier um, is associated with command of of a large brigade combat team, and and uh, you know it has a lot of lore around it. And uh, you know there's major general, lieutenant general, and general general. Uh, but brigadier does have that uh, exactly. sort of eloquence to it that uh, um, brings back uh, harkens to. Uh, some of the lore of uh, former conflicts uh, throughout the, the ages. There you go. Okay, so let's begin. We'll, we'll talk, as I think I mentioned offline, we'll, we'll begin by talking about your latest book. I'm also excited in a sense to have a, a fiction author on this show because most, mm -hmm. most, if not all of the people that I've hosted who've written books typically operate in the nonfiction world. So I have a good sense, having written many books myself, of you know what is the 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 mechanism by which you, you know you organize your thinking when you're writing a nonfiction sure. book. So I guess my first question will be: Tell us about the premise of this book, and then how do you go about creating the 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 work? Yeah. Away. So again, uh, Total Empire is all about uh, our protagonist. Uh, it's a recurring series. Uh, General Garrett Sinclair, who commands Joint Special Operations Command. And his goddaughter goes missing in this obscure terrain feature called the Eye of Africa in Mauritania uh, after uh, some combat there. Um, and her father is killed at that location. Uh, and uh, Sinclair has to go uh, find her. What he, In his pursuit of his goddaughter, he uh, uncovers a Chinese plot to have a laser targeting system to guide of hypersonic glide vehicles from outer space uh, to uh, they're laden with nuclear weapons to uh, specific uh, locations in the United States. And, uh, it, you know, the crazy thing is, you know, I, I get my plot ideas uh, from just reading. Uh, you know, I do a lot of commentating on Fox News and Newsmax. I used to do a lot of 
CNN, you, they don't they don't allow that back and forth now because it's trench warfare and the information uh, dominance game here. But uh, uh, as I'm preparing for and just being a student of foreign policy, international relations, I, I see, you know, China tested some hypersonic glide vehicles a few years ago. And as you know, being an author, it takes about, for me, six to nine months to write a book. And then it's about a year in production with the publisher, Macmillan, St. Martin's Press. So that's almost two years that things. Uh, so you, you kind of you, you've got to be predictive. And some people who read my book say, oh, that that's a little far out. That would never happen. And, you know, two years later, it's like happening. And and uh, I was on, on another show uh, with Laura Ingram and, and she's like total empire. It's about China. Trying, and, and we were talking about China, Putin, uh, Xi Putin talking uh, a few weeks ago. And she said, this is what they want is total empire. So that's why he named the book that it's a it's a piece of fiction. But all of the underpinnings of it are the real world stage and the machinations of of China going for global hegemony and using uh, its its levers of national power to do so, whether through information through military, through economic means. And so I blend the fiction with um, a backstop by very real um, motivations and and uh, a, a set that, uh, you know, people don't have to spend too much disbelief as they're, they're reading my, my stories. Gotcha. And now, how much do you think of your creative process as you write? I think, is it 15 books now? Is that is that the right number? 15. Uh, yeah, I've actually, I turned in number 16, the sequel to Total Empire. I turned in last month to my editor at Sam Martin's Press. Oh, congrats. So, uh, thanks. They're all within the military thriller genre. Is that is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I, I it's kind of like being typecast. I'd love to read mystery crime thrillers and all that. And I'd love to write that. And my Jake Mahegan series had trended toward that direction, but given my background, the editors with whom I've worked really want me to focus on this, this particular niche of the genre, because uh, there's, there's a solid market for it and, and we feed into that market. Uh, and so I blend in a little crime, a little mystery, and a little military thriller together uh, so that um, I, I'm writing what I like to read, which is when I have people talking to me God, about, um, oh, you know, I'm, I'm an aspiring writer. You know, what what what's your advice? I'm like, write not what you know, but what you like to read, because that's where your real passion is. That's a good mirror image of of where your interests lie. And and so for me, that's that's been uh, useful and and as I I use a screenplay guide to to sort of frame my my books uh, it's a book called Save the Cat uh, by Blake Snyder and you know always the opening scene the hero has to do something good right so you like the hero save the cat and and then there's very specific plot points that they say you should hit I don't use it um, religiously but I do. The big muscle movements, Act One, Act Two, Act Three. Uh, you know, there's some kind of culmination in each of the acts, and and um, and it goes to it leads into a bigger, bigger uh, crescendo finale occurring. And I, I love I love the creative process. Uh, I I get uh, 
a lot of good uh, commercial uh, trade publication reviews that talk about the creativity and innovation of of the of the plots. It's not just the standard, um, you know, deal where you know you've got a somebody's in trouble and and the the hero comes and saves the day and gets the girl at the end. Um, all those components are there, but um, it's uh, uh, my. My uh, plots, I, I think I, I put a, a lot of thought into them and, and the richness of of uh, these geopolitics playing out on the world stage. How much do you, I mean, I, I can almost answer the question for you, but how, do you think that you would have been as able to, you know, generate all of these uh, fictional stories in, in your various books were it not that you were a military man or do you or would it have been impossible for you to create what you've done so far as an author void of that experience well uh, certainly you know my life experience informs my writing so absolutely um it, it uh, uh it you know the my agent scott miller at trident media agency when i shifted from kinsanane books in my jake mohegan series to the Garrett Sinclair series at uh, St. Martin's, he said, um, give, let's give Scott something new. Give me a general. He was trying to tap into my experience. Give me a, you know, a fictional general, special ops guy, that kind of thing. So my agent, uh, who's been very good, um, uh, helped shape uh, the, uh, this series that's happening right now. And, and uh, readers like it. So the, the, um, uh, hypothetically, if I had not served in the military, the burning desire to write would still be there, and uh, perhaps uh, I would have trended in a in a different direction. But even as a kid, I I visited old Civil War battlefields, Revolutionary War battlefields, and and all of that really interested me, which kind of drove my decision to go to West Point and serve in the military. Uh, my parents were both school teachers, and they were big on patriotism and in public service. And so the, the sense of giving back and serving um, at the end of the day, books are about characters and Garrett Sinclair is about service to his country, to his men and women that he's uh, privileged to lead. And so all of that was sort of resident in me, even as a kid. And so if it wasn't a military, maybe it would be a cop or maybe it would be, uh, you know, trend toward the, the crime mystery uh, stuff that I, I truly enjoy reading. You know, I receive, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where given my public engagement, I receive, you know, innumerable emails from people from around the world, from all walks of life. And I'm always proud to say that uh, the ones that, you know, provide me perhaps the greatest amount of, you know, pleasure uh, when I receive them are from military folks. So uh, I receive, you know, from, you know, here's this green, green beret guy. Here's this uh, special forces right. guy because they're, they're, they're wed to reality. Right. So, I mean, it, you know, it's, it, this doesn't mean that I don't appreciate receiving a, you know, a lovely letter from a fellow academic from Stanford or Harvard. That's, that's also great. That's wonderful. It, you know, you're always right. happy to receive good thing, good words from anybody. But there is something unique about receiving those let you know, and it's funny because when I and actually I was going to ask you this later, but I'll do it now as a segue. Uh, 
there is there is a brotherhood obviously you know this i mean i used to be a competitive soccer player so there is this kind of you know you go to war when you get into the field and you know you mm-hmm. you know you go mm-hmm. through these and so there is this unique bond that is created with you know you know a man's man right uh and yet i try to imagine myself if i could have been a military guy and i wonder if maybe i would have been unsuccessful because one of the reasons that I have the public platform that I have is that I'm incredibly irreverent to orthodoxy, to, to, to you know, group mindset. And in the military, for better or worse, there is a hierarchy. You can't always be a free thinker. So would there be room for someone with my personality profile had I been in the military or would I have always had to hold my tongue because there is some a uh, superior general such as yourself was saying, shut your mouth, sad. Don't say what you're about to say. Well, well, um, I can get a Canadian recruiter over to your house with a <laughs> set of shears to shave your head and, um, you know, give you a PT test to you know, <laughs> test your physical fitness. But, um, and, and speaking of which, I, I had, uh, when I was a deputy commanding general in Afghanistan, I had a Canadian brigade in, in my com- brigade combat team, uh, uh, David Frazier was the brigadier in charge of that, and uh, uh, they they performed wonderfully, and it was a great uh, team uh, with with uh, Canada, uh, and and there were some UK troops working in there too. But your your point, um, I feel like I'm I'm that guy that you're describing, right? Because um, I I am not conventional. Um, it was not conventional for me to be. Um, thinking about, you know, in this very right brain kind of way, uh, uh, writing um, and and um, not accepting the orthodoxy that was uh, imposed upon me, while also understanding you have to operate within a chain of command, uh, you have a very regimented schedule. And so finding that balance, um, and I think this might be one of the reasons why I enjoy writing I've got the left brain saying, okay, you got to do X amount a day. You got to be organized about it. You got to be detailed about it. You got to do the research. And I got the right brain saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And so that balance, I actually did a TED talk on this, the art and science of writing. And I think within the context of serving in the military, I also um, uh, saw that and I understood that I... I had to, and the right brain of me said, okay, let's, let's go here to um, attack this area because I think, you know, my instincts are that this will put pressure on the enemy in this way. And then my left brain saying, okay, but you need the, the beans, the bullets, the fuel, et cetera. And being able to understand the high concept and also the logistics to achieve the high concept is pretty rare, I would say to be able to balance those two things. And maybe that's why I was successful in some respects. I also had great teams around me, the, you know, helping me achieve uh, the goals that uh, the unit had to achieve and so forth. Uh, nobody in the in the military gets anything done by themselves. So, uh, but to the extent that I was successful, I think it was because I was much like what you're characterizing uh, this creative side, not accepting you know, the, you know, the talking points, challenging that in my own way, while still being respectful, still, still understanding right. that I'm subordinate in the chain of command 
and and have have a boss to answer to. Even as the Undersecretary of Defense, I was the number three guy in the Pentagon. I still had to answer to the Deputy Secretary, the Secretary, and the President. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, you've always got a boss, and yeah, and, right. and, and and understanding and my, my that. boss is called my wife. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, uh, um, yeah, no, so, that's great. So it, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to, so in, in preparing for uh, our chat today, I, I went and I called through all of my writings where, uh, you know, there was some sort of, some finding from the scientific literature that was, you know, military related. And so I put together a bunch of these, which I thought would be really cool to to discuss. Sure. With the Brigadier yeah. General. So the first one is a, I mean, not that it's ma- it matters to you, the reference, but maybe somebody wants to look it up. Uh, the paper is titled Facial Dominance of West Point Cadets as a Predictor of Later Military Rank. And the idea being that there are certain uh, morphological signatures, for example, when you have a, a you know, a, 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 a facial features that are um, honest markers of testosterone, would does that then correlate to subsequent ability to ascend the hierarchy right i mean you 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 right when you when you think of a leading man in hollywood you expect him to be tall good looking and so on so you know humphrey bogart doesn't meet that standard yet right. he was right? right and so this study uh it's actually by two two people one of whom i know his name is alan mazer he's a sociologist at uh, syracuse university i think he's still alive he was you know, quite a bit older than me. Uh, what they found in this paper is that yes, if you could look at the photos of cadets early in their career, and those are predictive of uh, you know later success in the military. So, having said that, anecdotally, do you feel as though that in your career, when you look at someone, you say this guy, this guy or gal, but usually guy has the the stuff to be because he looks the part did you did you ever uh, succumb to that cognitive bias yeah, yeah yeah that's that's really interesting um i think there's probably something to that um uh, there can be people that look the part and you know judging the book by its cover but at the end of the day they have they have to stand up in front of troops they have to um, you know, uh, deliver uh, orders or, you know, I can, I, I'm thinking back to when I would stand up in front of my paratrooper battalion before a jump and, and, and say, you know, men, we're going to do this. I'm, I'll be the first one out the door. Um, you know, I, I lead from the front, um, you know, this, here's the mission. And so there's a certain, um, uh, yeah, you can look the part, but you also got to have the substance of the leader um, I I don't know. Uh, ver- I I think we get that positive reinforcement if 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 somebody looks the part. I have no idea if I looked the part, but um, if somebody looks the part, I think you 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 get the you get a buy or you get a pass or or until you um, you can't fill the part. Maybe right. so. Um, that that's what I would say is that yeah, there's probably some of that. And then when you when you you know can't uh, live up to the billing, then perhaps you're you're yeah. um, you know put on on the you know average path or whatever. Uh, right. I want to, by the way, show you. I don't know if you could see. Do you see this image? Mm-hmm. Th- this is actually a fan who sent it to me. Uh, 
and it has a it's doctored with my with and I didn't I didn't put up this poster for in, in honor <laughs> of your visit. It's been there, so that's an appreciation of uh, how much I love the military. Uh, second set of findings. You ready? Sure. So this is actually this comes th these set of references come from so this book the parasitic mind which was my last book uh the the book is about which and we'll, we'll get into this wokeness in the military in a second it's a the book is about you know where the where did these parasitic what i call idea pathogens originate and of course they regrettably as a professor i'm saying this regrettably they all originate from the university ecosystem precisely because it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas possible and so i first trace the the root of these parasitic ideas that have now infested every nook and cranny of society and then i offer an inoculation a mind vaccine against some of these ideas and in one of the chapters where i'm talking about uh, the the male feminist, the, the the archetypal, the guy who really cares, the guy who who wears the scarf, who hugs the trees, and so on. I actually argue that 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 person has a morphological signature. He doesn't typically look like the Navy SEAL. And I, in support of that uh, uh, position that I was taking, I then cite a bunch of very serious scientific papers. I won't go through all of them, but what the papers show. And again, to I'm going to link it to the military, is that if you take, for example, people's positions on social egalitarianism, should we all be equal? Should we redistribute wealth from the powerful to the needy? Should we engage in military interventionism in you know in in places far away from our shores? And it turns out this may or may not surprise you, Anthony. It turns out that physical strength or physical formidability of the person answering the question is predictive of how they respond to those economic and political issues the more physically formidable i am the for example even as measured by something as hand hand grip strength that turns out to be a predictor of the likelihood of my supporting, for example, military interventionism. More powerful I am, the more I am for military interventionism. More powerful I am physically, the less likely I am for let's all hug and get along. Any thoughts on that? Because it very much... Yeah, relates. so, yeah, that's really interesting. That's the brawn over brain argument. Um, I, I What I would tell you is that... Um, I think it relates to the earlier discussion about um, how you look and, and all of that, uh, because uh, the, you know, I, I played baseball. I wrestled at West Point and in high school. And I, you know, I, I considered joining the military, my version of being a professional athlete. And so I, I've always been relatively physically fit and, and uh, fairly aggressive and there, there was probably a time where where I was I, I trended in that direction. And so I would say, yeah, probably right. Um, at the same time, once once you get into combat and you have the experience of losing soldiers in combat, you understand firsthand um, that that this is not child's play, that we should not be sent to war for anything other than a vital national security interest and and that. Uh, the deployment of, of an army somewhere uh, should be taken uh, very seriously and only for the right reasons. And, and so 
And I think that's one of the reasons that our government works is the civilian control of the military, because you have these very physically, um, you know, fit brawn, you know, leaders that fit the, the, you know, the stereotype that are promoted and they're, they're, they're gung ho uh, for the most part. And, and, and then you've got people that maybe aren't that in this with the civilian control of military that buffers this aggression uh, tendency saying, okay, let's go fight here. Um, and, you know, you had Rumsfeld who was a wrestler in, in college right. and very, and fit and all of that. He, he wanted to go to war with everybody. Right. So there's, I think there's something to be said about that. Um, you know, if, if every problem, uh, if all you got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. And it, and if you're, if you're a combative kind of guy, um, and you think you can handle it by crushing the other person, then that that may inform your thinking. But, I, you know, I thought, I mean, even outside the context of the military, I think there's something uh, quite uh, insightful about the fact that many of the internal ideological positions that we take are actually predicted by what you would think should be irrelevant, which is your morphology. But, and actually I'm trying to use some of, those principles. So what in my in my academic career, in my scientific career, I try to marry evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology to consumer behavior. And so in a in a set of studies that I'm thinking, you know, of doing now with with some graduate students, is, is looking at what I call morphological consumption. The idea is that which car that I choose, which uh, product that I prefer, mm-hmm. might in part be determined by my morphology. And and again, what makes this this these kinds of studies interesting is because you wouldn't have thought of linking a morphological trait to a consumer choice or a morphological trait to a socioeconomic position that you take. And yet our 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 physiques do predict That's really that's really interesting. I I have to connect you with my West Point roommate Ed Fox who is now the chair of the marketing department at SMU oh, wow. uh, biz- business school. He got his PhD from Wharton. He's the only reason I graduated because he <laughs> studied by teaching me. I was busy playing baseball and wrestling and, and, and Ed was like the smartest guy in the school. And I just lucked out to get him as my roommate four years in a row. And uh, we became dear friends. He was, he flew up to Fort drum from Dallas uh, for my promotion to Brigadier and um, in the middle of in January when, you know, you can't travel anywhere up there. So, um, yeah, so that's but, cool. Uh, that's that's really interesting. And he he does a lot of this kind of thing, looking at research on on on, you know, obviously he runs the marketing department there. I uh, know. So. I'd love to connect. Uh, OK, yeah. last remember I said I'm going to discuss several scientific studies that relate to military. This one is comes from this book which is my forthcoming book on, you know, happiness and the good life. People would often write to me and say, notwithstanding all of the serious things that you tackle, you always seem to have a smile on your face. You're always playful. What's your secret, Professor Sad? I said, well, you know what? Let me write a book about it. And so in the process of writing that book, I came across this study, which I cite in the book. It's titled, uh, Happy Soldiers Are Highest Performers. It was published in the Journal of Happiness Studies, where they looked at this gigantic data set from the military and a, a mm-hmm. real data set, and they they found that uh, th- the soldiers that received you know bravery awards and so on, on average, scored higher 
on various happiness metrics. And so the, the, the main takeaway from the study is the happier I am, the better I perform. In this case, it's in the military, but of course you could extend it to other contexts. Happy sure. employers, happy employees make good employees. Uh, have you ever in your career in the military studied things like the well-being, the contentment, the happiness scores of your soldiers? Yeah, uh, not in a data-driven scientific right. way as you're describing, but um, leadership is all about monitoring the welfare of your men and women. And so I would do things like walk walk through the barracks, talking to individual soldiers. Uh, you're constantly testing the, the temperature of your troops, getting to know them and and being present to them so they can get to know you as your as their leader. And so there there's a lot there as you're talking about. Uh, there is a definite connection between uh, security, happiness and performance. And uh, if if we're in Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, pick the uh, country where there was conflict, if if uh, the soldier knows that his or her family or um, affairs are squared away, they can then focus better on the mission. And if they have good teamwork within their squad, platoon, whatever, um, that's reinforcing. And if they're accepted um, uh, and, and if they're um, getting that positive feedback every day with awards and that kind of thing, that that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm happy. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm happy. I'm rewarded. And there's that constant feedback loop. And when that breaks down, you have morale problems. You have, um, you know, people that are. Uh, spent spent out of the the unit and and do crazy stuff and there's always discipline issues uh within five to ten percent uh and and commanders a lot of times spend you know the 90 percent of their time on 10 percent <clears throat> of the people and i tried not to get into that um uh, cycle because it's the 90 percent that really deserve your leadership right. and if you've got 10 percent that you're focusing on then you know you're you're probably uh, missing an opportunity to to tend to the to the tribe, so to speak. That makes sense. Uh, okay, so uh, before we, I, I want to, I'm I'm being very mindful of the time. I know you have to catch a plane, so we've got about 15, 20 minutes. I definitely want to get to the the woke stuff in the military because sure. I think it's civilizationally important that we not be woke in the military. But before right. I do that, I wanted to link, uh, you know, your experience as a military man to something from my regrettably tragic past, uh, growing up in the uh, civil war in, in Lebanon. I don't know how much you know of my background, Anthony, but uh, we are Lebanese Jews who were part of the last Jewish community that was left in, in Lebanon when the civil war broke out and where it became very, very a bad idea to be Jewish in Lebanon. And right. so we faced some very difficult situations and then we eventually escaped and came to to Canada. And uh, I recently, well, not actually not too recently, a couple of years ago, I had another very uh, well-known military man, Robert O'Neill, who has been credited sure. with the, the, taking the the shot that killed uh, bin Laden. And I think it was when I was chatting with him where I was telling him about, and th this is actually something that I discuss in, in The Parasitic Mind, where I was telling him about two recurring nightmares that I would have 
now I probably have them every few years, but for about 25 years after we left Lebanon, they would be a recurring nightmare. And the nightmare would take one of two types, uh, two forms. Uh, version one is I would be dreaming that the bad guys are coming into the house and then uh, my gun would jam and I wasn't able to, you know, to, to fight back. And then I would wake up and, you know, in a panic. And the second version of that dream is that the bad guys are coming into the house and then I had run out of ammo, so I couldn't defend myself. And it was just a recurring dream that I always had. And what, what amazed me is as I was telling that story, I, I'm almost certain it was Robert O'Neill who told me this. He said, oh, well, the dream that you are describing, soldiers have it all the time, and it's called the warrior dream. Uh, are you? Does that ring a bell with you? Are you familiar with what he's talking about or what I'm talking about? Does that, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, it's the fear. Uh, he's right. It's, and I know Rob very well. Um, okay. um, it, it's the fear of um, every soldier has in real life and in their dreams. It's translated in their dreams. So particularly if you've, you've had, you know, intense uh, close quarters combat that, um those are the two things that can stop that can kill right. you right it's you know running out of ammo or weapon jamming and so um yeah i i think that um you know rob's exactly right that it's it's uh it's it's a manifestation of of a very uh real and serious yeah. concern and i'm and i'm i'm sorry for what's happened to your your city your country um it's uh it's a travesty uh, one of my books uh, takes place in Bekaa Valley, Beirut. Oh, and, really? Okay. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Reaper drone strike um, starts there and then migrates over to the United States. But uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of research. Unfortunately, I didn't get to travel there. But, um, you know, I, I, I understand a lot about uh, Lebanon and Beirut in particular and how it was the you know sort of the banking center of the world and sure. and now and now you know not so not, much yeah right right so <laughs> but, but you know uh, it, what I had re re replied to Rob when he had shared the fact that you know it's, there is a name to it called the warrior dream I said not not to engage in a competition with uh, these great soldiers but at least the soldiers in that fear that they exhibit in their psyches, in their unconscious psyches, when they're dreaming, gun jamming, running out of ammo, they are soldiers. They have big guns. Whereas in my case, I am at the mercy of the bad guys who can come after me and kill me. I don't have, uh, you know, war warriors with big guns and that can call right. the E6, right? So, so in a sense, it's the ultimate fear of being helpless in a world right. where any at any moment, if the knock comes at my door, I'm dead. And I discuss some of these right. situations, uh, which leads me just one quick other personal segue that I think you'd find interesting. And then we, I really want to get into the woke stuff. Uh, in 2017, I had faced some very uh, nasty death online death threats. I've since had one case of in-person death threat more recently. But in 2017, I had this kind of cascade, this tsunami of online death threats. This is what we're going to do to you, Jew boy. This is how we're going to kill you. This is how, and so on. So I had to file a, you know, a report with my university to for them to, to, you know, to come with me protection. And then we had to go to the 
Montreal police file a report. And uh, at the time, the head of security of my university was a former brigadier general, as a matter of fact. His name is Jacques Lachance, uh, who uh, during one of our meetings, I had told him, uh, you know, is there any way, given the fact that I'm a, you know, public figure that people know, yes, most of them are fans, some of them are not so fans, is there any conceivable way that you can help me or whomever can help me get a gun? And he looked at me quizzically and he said, that's how I found out that he had been a general. He said, you know, I I was a general in the Canadian military that was involved in protective, you know, services, and I can't get a gun in, in Canada. And, wow. and that that to me brought me back to being the helpless little Jewish kid who's at the vagaries of whoever wants to decapitate me because I don't have the supposed dignity to protect myself in Canada. I was recently told by the police, oh, if they come after you, then, you know, call 911. And I thought, my God, what a castrated country I live in that I have to rely on some other, I don't have the possibility to protect myself. What are your thoughts about all this? Take it away in any way you'd like to go. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that um, the, the um, you know, the segue from the dream to uh, receiving online death threats, uh, uh, we, we live in a world here that's filled with hate. You should not, nobody should have those kinds of death threats leveraged out of any kind of threats. And there's no, there's no place in this world for, for that, that level of um, hate. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that, um, and we're in an area now that's really dangerous for the world, for, for the United States, for Canada, where the corporate media um, if if you're aligned with them, they attack that kind of speech. If you're not aligned with them, they let it go uh, for the most part, and and if not, you know, help propagate it. And so we're we're in a really dangerous world. Um, I when I was the undersecretary, um, I unfortunately got COVID, and of course um, the the um, uh, and, and the circumstances don't matter. I was just doing my job. We were all masked up 20 feet away. You know, uh, there, there, it, it was a virus and just about everybody was going to get it. But because I, I got it, um, of course, I was hugely irresponsible. I was a senior guy in the, uh, the Pentagon. You know, these were all the stories, you know, top Pentagon official contracts COVID irresponsibly. You know, and it's like I didn't do anything to, to get it and I didn't want it, et cetera. The same day, Rachel Maddow, of course, her partner gets COVID and the story is Rachel Maddow, um, you know, caring for her partner with COVID. And, you know, that wasn't irresponsible. Right. And it's that nuance there that's there to attack people like you, like me. My my daughter, NPR, put out this story that, you know, I ir irresponsibly contracted COVID. My daughter said, hey, my dad's a great man on their Facebook page. Right. Um uh, my, my dad's a great man. You should not be um, uh, wishing him dead that, you know, because a lot of people say I couldn't have a nicer guy. I hope he dies. Um, and then she started getting death threats, right. Wow. For, just for defending her dad. So we're in a society now that um, 
everybody lives through these online avatars and they're, and this would be a great next book for you, Gad, but the, the separation between human to human contact um, and avatar to avatar contact really emboldens people to say stuff they would never say right. to somebody's face. And, and they stir up and foment that, that hate that then gets directed at somebody and has a real psychological impact uh, on, you know, you, on me, on my daughter and, and, you know, a 12 year old girl who's reading Instagram and she goes and hangs herself because she can't, you know, teen suicides have gone way up uh, since the advent of, of uh, Insta and Facebook and all of that. And, and there's a direct correlation there. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, okay. Let's I'm I'm really concerned about time. What is going on with the woke parasitic ideas? I mean, the place where you would think stands the chance of not being parasitized by all this nonsense should be the military. And yet, boy, are they doubling down on all the lunacy. What are your thoughts on that, General? Yeah, uh, you know, the military for the longest time was in the top, you know, 75 to 90 percent of most trusted institutions um, and uh, because it was viewed by most as being above the fray of the political, um, uh, you know, uh, discussions and activities. And by politicizing the military, as is being done now, uh, what we're seeing is this penetration all the way into the ranks that people are being force fed the stuff that they may or may not agree with. And which I personally believe is nobody's business, you know, the, the whole transgender thing and all of that. And I've long said, if there's a, a, a person that raises his or her right hand and wants to serve our country, if they're physically capable and mentally capable, then they should be able to do so. And I don't care what they look like, what they call themselves, as long as they can do the job. Right. I've said that for, for years, um, uh, in active duty, out of, out of active duty. And so the whole um, argument as my argument is it's nobody's business what you do behind closed doors and who you, who you are, but it's being force fed. This ideology um, is not sitting well with soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Um, and that's reflected in the very challenging enlistment rates that um, we're seeing now for a second year in a row. Uh, the military is not going to meet its enlistment quotas in the United States military. And, uh, that and the COVID vaccine, COVID became kind of a cult, a religion that uh, despite all the evidence, they kept pushing this vaccine. And there were people that didn't want to take it because they were going to start a family or, or whatever, and they didn't believe in it. And But you became uh, a pariah if you didn't buy into the orthodoxy. And, and it's really how we started the conversation about the orthodoxy you know, there's a lot of independent thinkers in the military because uh, they're just a reflection of society. And, and you know, everybody, you, know, you get a million shots when you go in the military. This one was different. And so I think those two things, the, the woke, um, you know, trans uh, ideology and, and, and the critical race theory and all that stuff, you're being taught not to love your country. And so when you tap into what the critical race theory is that you're a bad crunchy, you're a bad person, you should, you know, um, not like yourself. That's not good for anybody. We've talked about 
happy people perform better. And what you're saying is you cannot be happy because you're a bad person and you're in a bad country and, you know, we've got a long way to go. And there, there's a way to um, get the message across without forcing that stuff uh, down people's throats, making it a meritocracy based on your performance, you, you will get promoted. And, and that's being seen as being taken away by some of this, um, uh, as you call it, woke um, stuff. And, and, and it's a shame because it's really the last bastion of institutions that were not, um, uh, that were still respected by uh, the American public. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And just to add to that, and then I'll ask you a couple of last uh, questions and we'll wrap it up. Uh, you know, I, I I think it was Drew Brees, the, I guess his Hall of Fame quarterback. Now, I, I loved him as a player. I I loved New, New, New Orleans Saints because I, I really loved how he played and so on. And I, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago where he went on a groveling kind of apology tour where he said, because he, you know, he was against the, you know, kneeling at first for the flag, but then some of his uh uh, teammates corrected him about you know white supremacy of the United States and so he apologized and I thought you know here's a guy who's got this huge platform who is a hero who you know who tries to weave and duck guys that are 350 pounds coming to kill him and yet he didn't have the courage to say I'm not going to apologize for loving my country and the flag there's nothing wrong with being patriotic it's not toxic masculinity it's not white supremacy mm -hmm. guys like me who who have sampled from the buffets of societies that don't have the freedoms of the US uh, are precisely those who regrettably have to warn Americans that don't right. take things for granted in the United States because then you could end up like where I escaped from so it's really it, it breaks my heart to see Americans kind of throwing it away without even having a a bullet fired because of this orgiastic guilt and self-flagellation. It's, it's grotesque. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But it gets to my point about the media. There, There's uh, snipers and ambushes and full frontal attacks on people that buck the orthodoxy. And they do so um, in a, a slash and burn methodology. They want you destroyed so you can never work again. And so people um, are first and foremost concerned about themselves and their families and so uh if 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 he wants to be a sports announcer if he wants to have a career in finance or whatever he wants to do in his second act he better toe the line or right. he's just going to be destroyed right. and and that's that's where we are today the media is is um a reinforcing um quick reaction force for the um, you know progressive leftist ideology that is being um, spread all around the country and the world. Got you. Last two questions, very quick, rapid fire. Question one: I've long wanted to ride. I, I know you're 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 not Air Force or Navy, but I've long wanted to ride in a fighter jet. I'm being serious now. Can General Tata hook it up for Doctor Goodlooks? <laughs> I can, I can, I can certainly try, Doctor. Um, <laughs> um, I, I've got some friends that uh, um, fly in the Air Force and Navy. So I'm let, serious. Let, let, okay, yeah, let, let me let's follow up on that one. Okay, number one, number two. Uh, if this book, I, I could push you, I could push you out of an airplane as a paratrooper. That I can. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that courageous. I'm not that macho. Uh, so, 
uh, if this book right here or any of your other books were to make it as a Hollywood movie, can you right now on the record, this is watched by a lot of people, confirm that there will be a part for me in that movie for the supreme masculine military general played by myself since I fit that role. Can you confirm that? Well, I, I'm looking. I'm looking for a lead for Garrett Sinclair. So um, I what Look I no see further. is the, the the leading man, uh, macho macho man, uh, right here. Uh, is it okay Dr. that Chad I'm not said. six feet? Is it okay if I'm I'm under six? That's feet? fine. They That's can fine. put some elevator shoes on you and that kind of thing. Okay, so. then I think we got to deal. Uh, Anthony, what a pleasure talking to you. I wish I could keep you longer, but I know you have a plane to catch. Uh, thank yep, you so thanks. much for coming on. I hope that we stay in touch. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Real pleasure meeting you, General. Yeah, likewise. Uh, thank you so much. Cheers.